Let me now ask you to direct your attention to the passage this morning. It comes from the epistle uh, that we call 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. While you're looking for it, you can follow along in your own bulletins or uh, in your own Bibles. Uh, Let me tell you a few things. First of all, next week we return to the epistle to the Romans. And we'll pick up in chapter 4 with Abraham. But this morning is kind of the last one-off week that we look at uh, separate passages speaking about the advent or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And while you're turning there, um, let me just uh, uh, remind you that this epistle is written by the Apostle John to the churches in Asia Minor who he had been entrusted with shepherding and pastoring. So this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. If you're able, if you'd please stand and I will read aloud the passage. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 14, this is the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would be with us as we look together at your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through the Apostle John, now recorded in your written word, and we ask, Father, that you would sanctify your people. Would you make us more like your son, Jesus Christ? Would you cause us to see our desperate need of the gospel? Would you help us to confess our sin? And would you make us more like your son? We ask that you would do this work by your spirit in the hearts of your people and among us for your glory and for our good. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, this year... Uh, 2023 today kind of marks the the final day of the year for us, the calendar year, and there are many good things that we have experienced as a congregation in this year. There were some trying things, of course, but there were many things to rejoice over, and as I think of the things that we have as a congregation to rejoice over, one of the first things that comes to my mind are all of the children that have been born to this congregation in 2023. As a matter of fact, if you count them up, there are 18 babies born in our congregation during this year. That's a really great number. 
It's like one and a half babies every month, okay? If you think of it like that. And you might also be amazed to know that's not the most babies that have ever been born in this congregation. I think it was just two years ago. It was like 22 babies, okay? So lots of babies being born. We can rejoice about that. And as I was reflecting on this year, thinking about all of the babies uh, that have been born, it came to my mind, to my attention, you know, I'm very bad with remembering the names of babies. I don't know why. You may know, as I've interacted with most of you, that I'm really good with remembering names. I think I know about 98% of the congregation by name. And I, when I see you, I can greet you by name. But for whatever reason, when I see babies, I just can't remember their names. I mix up babies' names. And so I apologize ahead of time if you have a child this year and I don't immediately remember their name. But one of the things I think that often comes to my mind, even when I forget babies' names, is it's very easy to see most of them, the family that they belong to. You can look at the baby and you can see a lot of the parents and the babies, can't you? So when I think, for instance, of, of Gianna George, I always think, oh, she's a George baby. She belongs with Sean and Kara. Or a few months ago when I was baptizing Verily, I thought, oh, uh, I can see Stuart and Molly in Verily. Okay? And so if I forget their names, yet I can see their family resemblance and I know something of them. I know something of where they, they come from and, and where they belong. So that leads me to my question this morning, and I think it helps frame the passage. We can recognize children by the characteristics that they share with their parents, but how do we, how do we know, or how do we differentiate, or how do we identify who belongs to God? How can, how can we, by just looking at them, how can we identify a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? I think as the New Testament goes on, it gets increasingly harder. We know that when Jesus comes and he, he, he brings the good news in himself, we know that the people of God broadens or it begins to expand and it is no longer simply categorized by a group of people who have a common language or a common heritage, but followers of the Lord Jesus, they come from every ilk, from every background, from every language and tongue and every people group. They're neither male or female neither slave or free, but they come from all groups of people. So let me ask the question again. How can you identify a Christian? How do you recognize a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible has something to say about this. The Bible says that primarily you recognize Christians by the way that they love one another. You might have heard that before. And as a matter of fact, as you read John's first epistle, he picks up where he left off in the gospel of John, and he continues to show us that we are primarily identified by the way that we love one another. And if you think about that for a second, it's very significant, because for all of the things that God calls us to, he tells us that above all else, we're to be known by our love. And yes, we're to worship him, and we're to pray together, and we're to have peace and perseverance and long-suffering, and to have joy and to have hope. But the Bible says, above all else, you're to be known by the way that you love one another. As a matter of fact, if you read this whole epistle, John will make the argument that if Christ has come into the world, then it is essentially part of our nature that we will love one another. And that it is through our love that the world sees Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I think it's a fitting way to end this calendar year. 
and to begin a new calendar year talking about the thing that the Bible says is to identify us above all other things. So let me do this. Let me point out three points from the passage, three uh, ways that, the, that John says that through our love, the world will see Jesus Christ. Okay, first of all, John says that when we love one another, we prove that we have been born again. When we love one another, we prove that we've been born again. Look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now what John is doing at, at the beginning of this portion of the passage is he, he's beginning to establish a very logical argument. And let me give you the background of the logic and then we'll talk about how logical this is. It's really an A plus B equals C type of argument. Okay, but the Bible uses this phrase to describe our salvation. It often talks about us being born again. And you might have wondered, why does Jesus use the description of being born again? There's, there's many reasons. It's a really good analogy to describe our salvation. But I'll give you one of the reasons that John often picks up on. It is because our salvation is both simple and complex. We receive it in a very simple way. We receive it by faith and we say, well, I've had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been saved. That was a very simple process, wasn't it? And it may seem very simple to you and yet as we read the word of the Lord, we find out that salvation is actually very complex. It requires the shedding of blood on our behalf, the work of the spirit in our hearts, some sort of regenerative work, a justification, a union with Christ, a process of sanctification that results in glorification. It's very complicated, as a matter of fact. And that's one of the reasons that the picture that is used is, is of being born again. Because you see, the process of being born is both simple and complex, isn't it? For the child that's born, it's very simple. It grows in its mother's womb until the day comes and the child emerges into the world. Very simple. But for anyone who knows anything about childbirth, you recognize that it's actually a very complex process. It requires a lot, right? And, and so in, in that way, the, the being born again picture captures the simplicity and the complexity of our salvation. John will now say, if you think about this being born again process it will actually tell us something about our new identity. And here's John's argument. It goes like this. First of all, God is love. Did you see that in verse 8? In verse 7, John said uh, that love is from God, and that would be enough. But John takes it one step further, and he doesn't say that simply that love comes from God or that God does love. He says in verse 8 that God is love. He makes Love synonymous with the character of God. That is to say that love cannot be separated from who God is. That when we see him and we see who he is and we see his character traits, we recognize that essentially anything that we understand about love comes from the character of God. That he is love. Okay, so that's verse 8. But John will say that is A, that's the first part of the logical argument, but the second part of the logical argument is this. If you have 
been born of him, if you've been reborn, if you've been born again, if your heart has been regenerated, and John will make this logical argument by saying, if you have come from him, if you have been born of him, then you also will love. You see, God is love. We have been born of him. Logically, it follows, then we will love one another. John makes the argument that if God is essentially love, if love cannot be separated from his very character, that if we are born of him, then it will logically follow that also love cannot be inextricably separated from our new identity. That if we are born of God, we will love one another. As a matter of fact, he's so emphatic about that point that he says in verse 8, the exact opposite is true. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And, and the way he's using the word know there, K-N-O-W, is an intimate knowledge. Anyone who does not love does not have an understanding of God. Right? They're the opposite of God. They have not come from God. And, and so John puts forward this argument, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot of uh, imperative statements in John's epistle, but there's also a lot of indicative statements, that is, statements of fact, that John is not saying, hey, listen, you need to do this, but rather he's saying, this is true, and John is simply stating this is a fact. God is love. If you are born of him, if you've been regenerated by the Spirit, then you also will love. John can actually see no other way. That it simply is illogical to assume that Christians would not love one another. Isn't that interesting how John makes that argument? So I would encourage you as you think about this passage, first of all, uh, ask yourself this question. I, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if I was to survey the people who know me well, and I was to ask them, what are the character traits that you see in me? What are the things that you recognize in the way that I carry myself, in the way that I interact with other people? Where on the list would they identify the characteristic of love? Would it be the top of the list? Would it be towards the bottom of the list? Do the people who see you and the ways that you interact with other people, do, do they identify that you must be of a God who loves because you love other people. I think is, as you challenge yourself and as you, as you think through that, you, you might inevitably find that there's some repentance that needs to be taking place in our lives as we consider the fact that maybe not always are we loving one another as we have been called to do as part of who we are being born of God, a God of love. So that's the first point. That the, that the way that we love one another is evidence that we have been born again. That we have been born of a Father who is love. The second point that John makes in this passage, and this is where I want to direct your attention to the board. You may not see it, but that's okay. I'll, I'll read it out loud here. Second point I want to make is that John says that, that when we love one another, we actually give evidence of things that are unseen. Things that are invisible. That things that cannot be seen with the naked eye are actually brought to bear in reality by the way that we love one another. Okay, and so I want to I talk about this. And you probably noticed, here's verse 12. I wrote it right here, so if you can't see it, you can follow 
in your own Bibles, you probably noticed when you read verse 12 that there was a really strange, ver- uh, a strange phrase in verse 12. John is going on and on about uh, talking about loving one another, and then in the midst of, of loving one another, he says this at the beginning of verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. Did you notice that? When, you, when it was read out loud, did you say, well, that's strange? Love one another and, and, do, and, and have love and be love and God is love. And then he says, no one has ever seen God. It seems out of place, doesn't it? Well, I've, you know that I like to, uh, I, I really enjoy pulling out some of the original words and talking about the meaning in the text that you might miss if you simply are reading the English. And so here we go. First of all, this word that is translated as seen, all right, in your English is the Greek word tethetai. And if you've ever done any, like, you did an introductory Greek class and you started to learn uh, some Greek vocabulary, one of the first Greek words you would learn is the word blepo. Anybody ever learned the word blepo? Okay, good. I've got a few hands. Blepo is the word that means to see. Uh, but that's not the word that John uses here, okay? So we don't have the common word to see God. As a matter of fact, this word here is the word that means to gaze upon to fix your attention upon, to analyze, to be intimately looking at. It's the word that you might use if over Christmas break you have a craft or a hobby. You were like knitting or sewing or maybe you're coloring by number and you were looking at this thing for like hours on end as you were working on it. That's the word you would use to describe what John is saying here. And you know you've done that if you're looking at this thing And then your attention gets drawn away and you look up and you have to readjust your eyes. That's how you know you've really been staring at something for a while, okay? This is the word that John uses. Essentially, he says, no one has ever analyzed God. No one has ever intimately seen him. No one has ever been able to pour over him with their eyes and and, and to really see God. And, you know, as a matter of fact, we know that to be true, don't we? If you were to survey the Old Testament and to look at all of the theophanies of God, which is kind of the the revelations of God in the Old Testament, you would see that anytime anyone interacts with God, it actually is not truly God in his actual presence. It is some sort of picture of him. Moses sees God in a burning bush. And the high priest goes into the temple, the tabernacle, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. And Joshua comes face to face with the angel of the Lord, but no one has ever truly laid eyes on the living God. And so this is true. And and yet again, I'll ask the question, why does John include it here in 1 John chapter 4? You know, at first blush, as you're reading this, the first thing that came to my mind, it seems like John has uh, an attention deficit disorder, Right? Where, uh, where John is writing about uh, loving one another, and then an idea comes across, and he just kind of grabs it and puts it in the text, but that's not what's happening here, though it may feel like that at first glance, okay? As a, as a matter of fact, what John is doing is he's brought up this idea to connect us to two other phrases that are in this passage, first of all from verse 9, and then the finish of verse 12 to make an essential point to us as we love one another. And so here's the point. First of all, as you look back at verse 9 to answer the question, well, no one has ever seen God. What do we do with that? In verse 9, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay? 
That's what the English says. The, the vocabulary word here, it's written in the past tense, so it looks a little bit different than this, but it's, it's the word phanero, which means to reveal, to disclose, or to show more of, okay? It's actually a word I think you could intimately tie with tethetai. They're both uh, vision words, okay? So no one has ever seen God, but in this, the love of God was revealed to our eyes among us. It was shown to us. It was demonstrated to us. And how was the love of God made manifest? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see what John is saying. The living God is invisible. No one has ever seen him. We, we know that to be true. We look around and we don't say, well, I, I saw God on my way to church this morning. I mean, you may say that, but you don't mean that you actually saw God, okay? No one has ever seen God, but John says that Jesus Christ who has come into the world is the visible manifestation of God so that those who have seen Christ have seen God. As a matter of fact, now that he has been written down and we lay hold of him in the word of God, John will continue the argument that through the word of God, we now lay hold of the invisible God, and we see him, and we make sense of him, and in some sort of human way, we can lay our hands on him, not completely, okay? And so, I'm not sure if you think about all the practical implications, but think about this. You've probably encountered, maybe you've even asked this question yourself, but at the very least, you've encountered people who would say something like this, I can't believe that God loves me. He always seems like he's against me. Okay? Or I don't really believe that there's a God. I've never seen him. I, I don't believe in him. Give me some evidence of him. The biblical way to answer that question, John would say, is that we point people to the Son of God. God sent his only Son. He is the, the manifestation of the love of God. That even when we wrestle over those questions for ourselves, our attention should be directed to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? Fix your gaze upon him, and you will see the love of God. God is love. You have seen God. Right? This beautiful picture that John is laying out for us. Yet, John will take it one step further. Here's what he says at the end of verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's the Greek word meno. And his love is te. Teleomene. Don't worry about this word yet. It's a big word, but we'll talk about that. If we love one another, God abides in us. Uh, uh, the word meno actually doesn't technically mean to abide. It means to remain with. You can see how that could be translated as abide, but it means to remain with, to stay with. It's like someone was here, and then they were going to go, but they didn't. They stayed with us. Okay, that's what the word actually means. You can see intimately how this is connected with the Son of God. Son of God is the revelation of the unseen God. Phanero, he has been revealed to us. No one has ever seen that God, but if we love one another, God remains in us. You see that? He stays with us. He's present with us. He's evident here as he is in us. And so this points us to the remaining work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a God who cannot be seen, but he's seen through his Son. Now he remains with us. And his love is, now don't worry about this long word. That's the Greek word teleos, okay? Teleos. And if you're, you're like, okay, that sounds kind of familiar. Often we use this in English. You think about some of the uh, English derivatives, the word telescope. 
comes from teleos, okay? It, it gets translated as perfected in the English, but it really means to get a fuller picture of, okay? So one commentator said, if you want a good picture of what this word means, think about a pirate's telescope, and they kind of unfold the telescope, and when the final end of the, the looking glass is extended, then you see the whole picture, okay? It's also a, a, a vision word, a word that, that speaks about vision, and so Here's what this passage says. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is fully pictured in us. You you see what John is doing? He's using these words that if we were reading the original language, we would say, oh, I see how these are all connected. These are all vision words. And he's telling us essentially that the invisible God is made visible primarily in the way that we love one another. Isn't that interesting? That God who cannot be seen was manifest in the coming of his son Jesus Christ and now he remains here. That is primarily seen in the way that we love one another. Have you ever thought about that? if, If we want to see God, God calls us primarily Love one another, and the world will see God. I don't know about you, but I I find that astounding, terribly interesting. It is one of the things that historians will say was true about the early church. If you ever read anything about the early church, uh, there's great evidence to say that above all else, they loved one another very well. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the non-Christian Roman historians record that the, the thing that was said in Rome about the Christians, the thing that was said above all else was um, see how they love one another, right? And though they knew nothing of Christ or of the religion that these people followed, they, they saw with their eyes that above all else they loved one another. If you want to look for anything to credit to the explosive power of the gospel in the early church, and the, the, the growth of the church looked first and foremost to the way that they loved one another. Absolutely amazing. Justin Martyr, one of those early Christians, he, he noted this. He, he saw it in the church and listened to what he said. He said, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund. We share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another. We refused to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. God would say that is the way primarily today that he is revealed to the world, by the way we love one another. Isn't that amazing? Third point, and this just briefly, our love for one another is rooted in the incarnation. It's rooted in the incarnation, the coming of Christ. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and love is perfected in us. See, this is, I think, the most beautiful part of the whole exhortation that John gives because as we read here, we find that we don't have a hard taskmaster who commands us 
to do something that he's unwilling to do. And we don't have a, a distant king or an advisor who says, hey, you guys love one another. What the Bible says we have is a God who loved us first, who loved us while we were yet enemies and made us his own. And not only did he love us, but, the, but John here describes his love. It is a deep, sacrificial love. One that comes at a great cost to him. Look at how it's described here, again, beginning in, in verse 9. That God sent his only son into the world. Two things about that, right? We get the familiar relationship. This is his son. Not something he just created and said, let me create something to, some object to die for the sins of my people. It is his son. Not only is it his son, it is his only son. It's exclusive. Not like God had a bunch of sons and he said, okay, I can afford one. Let me just send him off to make sacrifice for sins, okay? The only son of God, if you were going to just guess right now, what is the most prized possession, the most beloved of God, the thing most dear to him, you would be right to guess his only son. That's what the Bible tells us, okay? We are to reflect the love of God who first loved us, and he loved us by sending his only son And what did he send his only son to do? Well, the passage says in verse 10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, okay? Now, you may remember, we talked about this like a month ago. In Romans, Paul uses the word propitiation. He uses it twice there. It's once used in Hebrews, once in 1 John, and it's not used again in the New Testament. What does propitiation mean? It's a very specific, non-ambiguous, religious word That means a blood sacrifice to satisfy the anger or the wrath of a God. And we know that because the word is not only used in the Bible, it's used in a lot of Greek literature. The Greek gods did it, the Roman gods did it, the cults of the world, they did it. They required the followers to make blood sacrifices. And they said, you spill blood, you offer on an altar, and you will satisfy our anger. Well, what the Bible says is that God sent his only son not to require us to make blood sacrifice, but he sent his only son to be the blood sacrifice to satisfy the wrath and the anger of the Father. That's the love that God loved us with. That's how much he cared about you and I, that he sent his only son to be the propitiation for sins. You see that Jesus didn't come to be a good teacher. He didn't come to be a great prophet. He is those things, but that's not what he came for. He came by the design of the Father in this plan set before the foundation of the earth to be crucified on a cross, that his blood be poured out to satisfy the wrath that our sins demand so that we could be called sons and daughters of the living God. And John says simply this, if you are of God, you ought to love one another in a small, similar way that God has first loved you. That God gave his only son for you. Let me ask you this final question. If we loved one another in that way, what would the world do with that? Right? Do you, have you ever thought about that? I mean, if the Christian church loved one another in the way that John is describing, here in 1 John chapter 4, if we loved one another in this way, what in the world would people out there do with that? I think their minds would be blown. Right? They would say, something is going on here. And they would inquire and they would seek 
and God would use that to grow his church. It's absolutely amazing. Let me tell you something. There are, there are all these movements in the Christian church today to try to reclaim Christian community, okay? So especially within our culture and here in America and in this time period, there's a lot of Christians who feel as if they're losing Christian community, and they look at their neighborhoods and they say, well, look at our neighborhoods. It used to be that everyone went to church, and now nobody goes to church, and they're desperately trying to get, get a hold of that and to reclaim that. And they, you look at your schools and you say, well, we've lost prayer in the schools, and we've lost the Ten Commandments, and we, we desperately need to get that back, and, and we've lost it in the media, and we've lost it in entertainment, and, and it feels like it's all being taken away from us, and we need it back. And Christians all around the world and around this country are proposing all of these ideas to reclaim Christian community. And they think, some of them think, well, if we force it, right? We take back government. We, we force people to comply with our religious standards and we can make them conform to the will of God, right? And some people pursue those means. And then there's other people who say, they, well, the, the plan really needs to be we just need to water down this, the word of God. And if we don't talk about the offensive things and we just find a few of the highlights, then people will really come into the church. That's how we do it. We just get rid of some of the hard stuff, okay? But let me tell you something. Every idea that's being proposed right now are man-made ideas that you will not find in the Word of God. Very simply put, the Lord God tells us that he will work to build his church and he will work to build his kingdom and we are simply called to love one another. And when we love one another, God works through us to make he who is invisible visible to the watching world. Amen, right? That's an amen time, okay? You could say amen at that moment. This is the biblical prescribed means through which God works to change the world and to change hearts and to draw people unto himself. It is that as his people love one another, he is demonstrated to the world. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you look around you and you begin to think, well, how will God bring about revival? How will God establish the next generation? I want to encourage you that we are commanded to love one another. And the Lord God promises that he will work through our love and the proclamation of his word. Right? As a matter of fact, Jesus told his disciples, John chapter 13, verse 35. They will know that you are my disciples by this, by the way that you love one another. And so the promise is that the invisible God is made visible through our love. Jesus Christ is manifest to a watching world. Amen. Let's pray. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, come before you this morning. We thank you first and foremost that you have loved us. You're a good God. We have not deserved your love. We know that from our experience and through your word, we know that we have fallen short. There is so much evidence in our lives that we have not been as you have created us to be, image bearers, lovers of one another, and most importantly, followers of you. We know that we have gone astray and we thank you, our Lord and our God, that it is not by works of our hands, not by obedience to the law, but through Christ Jesus, who died on our behalf 
And through the gift of faith that we have now received the Lord Jesus Christ and we have been declared right and righteous and whole. And we've been justified. And we thank you, Lord God, for this. And now I pray, may your spirit, O God, work among your people that our hearts would be burdened, that we would know that God is love and if we are born of him, we also will love. And we will forgive. And we will live sacrificially at the expense of ourselves, lifting up others that as we go out into the world and we love, that through our love, the world would see you and they would come to you and they would come in faith and that your church would grow and that your kingdom would be established. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would work this in our hearts every day more so that we would love you and love others. We thank you We praise you, and we worship you this morning through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.